Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, Planet Bean Coffee, CFRU 93.3 FM, and Granddad's Donuts, and features an interview with Dr. Susan Rogers, a prolific music engineer and producer who famously worked with Prince and is currently the director of the Berkeley Music Perception and Cognition Laboratory. This conversation was recorded before a live audience at the Megaphono Festival in Ottawa, Ontario, on Friday, February 8th, 2019. Thank you very much, everyone. Welcome. Welcome to this uh, church. And uh, I'd like to, without further ado, uh, introduce our guest of honor today, Susan Rogers. Thank you. Hi, Susan. Hi. Thank you for coming out and thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to talk about music and music science and all sorts of things related to the stuff we all, I assume everyone in this room loves. Yes, yes, it's very exciting. Uh, I thought today we would get to know more about you uh, and your role in some of the work you just described. And uh, first of all, I wanted to say welcome to Ottawa. Have you ever been to Ottawa before? Never Ottawa, no. Never. Do you have any perspectives on Ottawa? Have you ever thought about Ottawa? (laughs) It's close to Toronto. Uh, kind of. Oh, oh, that's bad. Okay. Well, it's, it's far. very different from Toronto, <laughs> as far as I can tell. That's right. Well, I love Canada. Some of the happiest years of my life were spent in grad school in Montreal for that's four right. years. And right. the certainly the greatest commercial success I've experienced were with the ladies, um, bare naked ladies, as well as odds out in Vancouver. Oh. So the times that I've spent here, either studying or making records, have are among, among my most cherished memories. So. It always feels good to come to Canada. Right, so you, you did attend school in Montreal, but never... That's fascinating that you never made the trek here, uh, because... And I'm not... This is not meant to disparage you in any way, but that's fascinating. You were no, so close. They kept us really busy. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> really busy that's in grad right. school. They do that, that's true. So where are you currently based? Where are you living? I'm in Boston. In Boston. Uh, after I left McGill, I uh, was hired by a former friend of mine who was the dean in the Department of Music Technology there, or the Division of Music Technology, and he persuaded me to come to Berkeley. It wasn't what I wanted. What I wanted in my fantasy mind, I thought that I was going to become a, a researcher and 
initially I wanted to work with pigs. Well, who doesn't? Yeah. I had worked with musicians my whole adult life, and um, I wanted to be, in my fantasy life, a cognitive ethologist. And uh, in particular, I chose pigs to be the subject of my study. It's the only intelligent animal that we eat. All the rest of them we leave alone, but mm-hmm. we're not treating the pig very well. And I wanted to, well, just for the fun of it, that's why scientists do what they do. But um, my friend explained to me, he said, your science career is going to be really, really short. I got my PhD at age 52. It doesn't make sense oh, to I go see. and do a postdoc and compete with the 26-year-olds. Hmm. And he said, you know, I can give you a grown-up salary if you come here. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can teach your virtual PhD, which is record production and engineering, as well as your actual PhD, which is music cognition and psychoacoustics. And I kind of crunched the numbers mentally and said, yeah, that makes sense. I'll do that. Well, you mentioned that you you'd spent so much time working with adult males. Um, in, in the music industry, do you see a parallel I you between? Were talking about pigs. No, well, <laughs> I was going to ask. Did you? Do you see a parallel between adult male musicians and pigs? Is there a through line there? there I think be. there is. There, personally, there could be. Uh, yeah. I don't know pigs very well. I don't know pig nature. I, I don't. I've never had a pig. I'd like to someday. But I understand they're intelligent and they're affectionate. Yeah. And certainly, the men I've worked with have been all that. Yes. Okay. Good. You said pig a lot there, by the way. That was okay. a lot of iterations of pig. So uh, you're in Boston now. Where did you grow up, per se? Southern California, Anaheim, California. Anaheim, California. And when did you develop? Was your family life good? Were you, were your fa- was your family supportive of your interests, so to speak? Oh, no. Well, yeah. Um, kind of. <laughs> uh, I'm the oldest of four. I have three younger brothers. I see. And... Uh, Unfortunately, very good parents, very good, but uh, lower, kind of lower middle class, working class. But uh, my mother got very ill when I was eight, and she passed away when I was 14. So after that, it was kind of every man for himself. My father, and this actually was, actually I've come to find out, was a very good thing. He set the bar very low for my brothers and me. Get a job, and you're good. (laughs) Get a job, and you're you're golden. And his dream for me was I'd go to work for a grocery store because I'd be in a union. Oh, I see. Your That's father had three jobs, didn't he? Well, he had point. quite a lot. Quite yeah, a lot he of worked jobs, morning, yeah. noon, and night. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted something more for myself. Uh, I'll jump over and just kind of do um, a, kind of a leapfrog over some of the major points. But I got married when I was 17 in order to just be an adult and start my own life. Mm. And fortunately for me, I married someone who was very abusive, physically abusive. He used to beat the crap out of me. Um, He was jealous. So it sounds like this story is going to be sad, but it's not. You did say fortunately. Yes. Because he was bad, I could leave him guilt-free. If I had married a good man at age 17... I would have stayed with him. Mm. I mean, you know, you'd, you'd want to. But he was bad. And because he was bad, I, I could flee and feel no guilt about that. So mm. I uh, finally, at age 21, is when I responded to that inner call that had been there since I was this big to be where records were being made. And, and I moved to Hollywood, which wasn't that far away, and I got started. So how did you actually get started? Let's get into that. You... Actually, before that, uh, what sparked your initial interest in music as a teenager? If I assume it was when you were, or no, actually, if I recall correctly, 
you were around seven years old when the Beatles were kind of on the rise, right? But if I, if I understand things correctly, you didn't really care for them? The Beatles were kind of omnipresent. I, I grew up a Beatles fan as well, mm. and uh, I've always thought they were kind of cool. Uh, but in retrospect, I imagine when something is so omnipresent, uh, they're not as cool. It's like U2 or Coldplay in our yeah. modern parlance. They're just sort of everywhere, and then they don't, they don't have the cachet. Growing up with the Beatles at the time, were they kind of considered a bit lame in any way, or were they always kind of cool? Well, I was pretty little. I didn't really mm. know what cool was, but uh, <laughs> all the kids were talking about them, and there were older teenage girls on the block right. who that's all they could talk about. No, it's an interesting thing, and I'd love to see this explored scientifically. I believe that children know their resonant frequency. I believe that mm. children know what they like and what they dislike, and as long as adults aren't telling them who they are or what they should like or dislike, if you let them decide for themselves, they'll tell you, I think pretty honestly, what they like and what they don't. And I recognize that the Beatles were okay, but there was other stuff that I heard on the radio that I was more responsive to. This was when you were seven, roughly? Seven years old? Seven, eight, nine, ten, okay. right in that in that in that age. And as it turns out, in speaking as a brain scientist now, the age between between the ages of 8 and 11 is when the human brain makes some important changes in order to get ready for puberty. And uh, humans are as musical as they're ever going to be by the age of 11, unless they take music lessons, which will keep the thing, keep the clay wet. Mm. But anyway, right around that age, I was recognizing when James Brown would come on the radio, when Sly and the Family Stone would come on, you'd be a little kid and you'd be going, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now that just feels right. <laughs> and who knows where that comes from, but so it's an inner knowing of, yeah, that just seems right to me. Uh, given your cognitive knowledge now and the studies that you have engaged in, and you're saying I don't are you saying you don't know why James Brown and Sly and the Family Stone would have resonated to you at that point? I don't think we know. I'm going to talk a little bit about it tomorrow, the right, mechanisms tomorrow. through which people bond to music, but uh, we know that we can bond to music through the motor pathway. Yeah. It makes us move a certain way, or music makes us think a certain way. The lyrics usually do that, or the chord changes in melody can make us feel a certain way. And some of us have a greater appetite for rhythm, or a greater appetite for lyrics or for melody. The Beatles fans were um, hankering for melody, whereas some of us hmm. wanted to wait the mixture a little bit more strongly on the rhythm. The, the rhythm mattered more. And unless it had that deep pocket, it wasn't giving the same level of satisfaction. Is that a visceral thing? Is, that a, is there a distinction to be made between intellectually processing melody and rhythm m more or less making you move? Yeah, there are all these, all these brain circuits is what I was about to say, and that sounds really stupid. There are it didn't a lot sound of, stupid to me. I'm I'm kind of dumb. That sounded smart. Of, there are a lot of there. It's it's the, the understatement of the year. There are a hundred billion neurons in the brain, uh, right. and so these paths are all interconnected. But a shorthand version is um, human beings, unlike other certain other primates and monkeys, have a, a lot of connectivity between the auditory cortex right here and the motor cortex. So music makes us move. And movement 
makes us want to move in a steady rhythm. So the two mm. things, mm. movement and music, go together perfectly. But then there are also these frontal lobe connections that are constantly judging things. And people like that. Animals like that. They like to judge. So when you listen to a piece of music that you think is really clever or especially beautiful, you'll bond to that. Yes. And, and you'll judge it as being your music, the best music. And you'll tell everyone else, this is the best. And you're going to stick to your guns unless that band comes out with a really bad album. Right. <laughs> so you hear Sly and the Family Stone. You hear James Brown. This sparks an interest in music when you're young. And you mentioned that as you got older, you moved to Hollywood to explore record making. But between that time when you hear these songs and these artists and that time where you move and try to do something about it, what was your engagement with music like beyond being a fan? Did you try to play music? Uh, were you interested in, in that in any way? Like, I'm going to try to learn how to play instruments. No. Uh, my my uh, mother insisted that we buy a piano because she saw how interested I was in music. And, and they got me piano lessons. And um, I was it, it brought me no joy whatsoever and it brought the listeners no joy any joy whatsoever it really didn't even feel musical to me going through those exercises did not give me the satisfaction that listening to the radio and listening to records did i another thing that i don't that has not been studied but i really think there's an aspect of musicianship that involves listening i believe that my musicality such as it is is that I am a really good listener. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Chris Doritas is here, and Chris is another one, I'm sure, cut from that same cloth. What we do is we listen to music. Okay. Did you have any other creative outlets beyond music growing up as a, as a child or a teenager? Did you do anything in the realm of creative or cultural production? I, uh, not especially, you know, like a lot of kids, I like to draw and I like to read. Um, Brain science also shows us that there are different archetypes of thinkers. Mm. The type of thinker I am uh, is an engineering type. I, um, I gravitated to neuroscience and to engineering because uh, I'm better at building things than inventing things. I see. Which is why I was a good match for the artists I worked with, with, with Prince or with Gagita or with Bare Naked Ladies. People who think of, artists who think of new ideas need builders to help them facilitate those ideas. And that's what I was strong at. You felt that you, had a, you were more mechanically inclined on some Oh, level? definitely, yeah. definitely. And, and more practical and logic-based. Right. I don't invent things de novo from the new, but if someone comes to me with a good idea, I can help them build it. So prior to moving to Hollywood... Had you developed some kind of base foundation of skills uh, to become an engineer, or did you move to Hollywood with the impulse to try to develop those skills? Yeah, I knew absolutely nothing. You I couldn't have told you one side of a battery from another okay. when I started. Hmm. Uh, I, I knew absolutely nothing. I just had this desire to be in the music business where records were being made, and I did have good self-awareness of what I was capable of doing. I knew that I liked to study, and I knew that uh, anything technical would probably be a good fit for me. Hmm. I talk with students about this a, a little bit. There's a difference between our strengths and our motives. And not all of us, in fact, most of us don't have perfect overlap between what we're good at and what we want to do. 
right. it would really behoove young people to find the Venn diagram, that overlap between what you're good at and what you really want. And I happen to find that. I, I'm, I'm good at being technical, and that's what I wanted to be in the music business. I did not want to be on the other side of the glass writing or performing music. I had no interest in that. Right. Okay. So you moved to... Cal one of the, the particularly intriguing aspects of your story, as far as I understand it, is that you, are very, you were very much uh, a self-starter in terms of your craft. You are uh, one of the earliest proponents, I think, of DIY in music, doing things yourself. Am I correct? Did you kind of self-teach yourself everything that you know? Just by reading the books. Um, reading I, the books. I, I wanted to be a technician, and I, I, my friend, my roommate, got me a job as a receptionist in a tiny little one-room schoolhouse for auditory arts. Uh, and as I was working behind the desk one day, I overheard one of the teachers say to a student, become a maintenance tech. You'll always have a job in the music business. And I thought, okay, well, then that's what I'll do. I'll become a maintenance tech. And the maintenance tech is different from the audio engineer. The technician is the one who repairs the equipment. And I was so willing to do that if it would allow me to be where records were being made. So I uh, studied basic uh, electronics, uh, theories of, of electronics, and audio technology, of course. I read Modern Recording Techniques, the first edition, wore the spine out of that book. And yeah. I studied acoustics and the principles of magnetism and all those sorts of things so that I could be part of the conversation. It's fascinating to me because I, I've interviewed some younger uh, artists who uh, are in the realm of hip-hop production or electronic music production. I'm thinking of uh, an artist from Brampton uh, who goes by Wonder Girl who ended up having a beat on a Jay-Z album, the weakest Jay-Z album, but still. Uh, and then also Harrison, uh, an, an electronic artist from Toronto. In both those cases, when I asked them, how did you learn how to do what you do? They said, YouTube. I learned how to play all the musical instruments and all the technical aspects of what I know are just from YouTube videos. So that's kind of, to me, that seemed like a newer phenomenon. And then I read your story. And this is definitely pre-YouTube, right? You, you didn't have YouTube when you were learning, <laughs> learning how to... <laughs> we had cathode ray tubes. Cathode ray tubes, had, That's what yes. we had. It's an early version of yeah. YouTube. No, you, you simply, where did you get these books from? Like now it's so easy. We Google things we don't know. I took apart a washing machine, me. I don't know how to do anything. It was fun. Isn't I enjoyed great? it. I took it out of the thing and I took it apart from some guy made a YouTube video Isn't and I fixed great? my watch. It's really satisfying and fulfilling. Uh, but at the same time, I've tried to, you know, take, uh, in the past I was put in guitar lessons or I put my son in piano lessons, you know, and he's kind of like you. There's a bit of a, he likes it, but there's also a little joylessness in it. But anyway, this this is a really interesting time because a lot of musicians uh, have access to information to teach them how to improve themselves. Uh, they also have access to distribution channels for their music because of the internet. So all I'm saying really is I feel like when I hear your story, it seems like a pioneering aspect of what's going on a lot now of just like, I want to learn how to do this. I'm going to teach myself. No one's going to help me. And I'm just curious about that impulse to be like you were just driven to do it. Yeah, you do have to have, you have to have that full can of whoop ass 
Um, <laughs> you're going to need it because uh, you're going to expend a lot of it climbing up that hill. There's a book that just came out last October by some Harvard researchers. It's called Dark Horse, and I was featured in it along with uh, several others in different fields. The thesis of this book is most people pursue success in order to be fulfilled, but some of us pursue fulfillment in order to be successful. Yes. And I always just did what made me happy, and right. still do. I pursued personal fulfillment. This is what I'm curious about. This is what I want. Yeah. And I was fortunate enough that success came as a byproduct of that. Um, and I think thanks to the availability of information, more people now will be able yeah. to do that. They'll, As long as they're in touch with what it is they want, and as I said earlier, the degree to which that overlaps with their skills, uh, they they should be able to find others who have walked that same path in front of them, mm -hmm. and they can follow in those footsteps, or at least take someone else's map. Uh, in my case, uh, after the bad husband, I had a very good boyfriend, a very good boyfriend, and he was also an electronics genius. His electronics textbook came from the U.S. Army, and he suggested I get mine there, too. Oh, interesting. So I called the U.S. Army, the local recruiter. I just called the recruiting station, and I lied about my age. I said, I'm 16 years old, and I'm going to get out of high school, and I'm going to join the Army, so I want to study electronics. Will you send me your electronics manuals? And they did. They sent me uh, the full volume just for the cost of postage, DC principles up to microwave technology. I still have those books. You lied to the army? I lied to the army. It's <laughs> <laughs> an aspect yeah. of your story I hadn't heard before. Yeah, it was totally worth it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about how you went from uh, gathering uh, books and data to having practical experience with the equipment you were likely mm -hmm. reading about. How did that occur? And yeah, where did that occur? It was, I was looking for work, and uh, the Los Angeles Times newspaper, we were just talking about how we feel bad about you know, journalism and the absence of newspapers and media. It's, oh, backstage, that's true. Yeah, we were. Yeah. It, it, it's rough. But back when there were newspapers that had want ads in the back, the LA Times, the back of the LA Times said Audio Trainee Wanted, and it was for a company called Audio Industries, right on La Brea, across from A&M Studios in Hollywood. And I just happened to live up the street from them, and, and they interviewed me and they hired me. So the tech crew there taught me to be one of the tech crew and uh, what we did was we sold and serviced MCI consoles and tape machines. I didn't sell them but I repaired them in the greater Los Angeles area. Mm. It was the best education I could have hoped for because I'm working in Los Angeles. Yeah. The year I started was 1978, repairing consoles and tape machines. And I'm going to studios uh, where I'm seeing the Eagles or David Gates from Bread. Remember Bread? I remember Bread. Heat Wave. Uh, Ray Parker Jr. built a really great studio with the money from Ghostbusters, the theme song that he wrote, and going to studio after studio after studio and seeing these people in the business repairing their equipment and getting a sense of my place in the business. It was, it was very fortunate. Speaking of your place, how unusual was it at the time for a woman to be in this industry? Did you have contemporaries uh, who were in the same field, or were you often the only woman. No, there, there weren't women maintenance techs. None. It was extremely rare. Hmm. Uh, someone told me once that there was one in Australia. 
<laughs> That's how rare it was. <laughs> They're just like a more, mythical creature almost. <laughs> there weren't that many. I remember the first time I went to a radio station uh, in Los Angeles to fix their tape machine, and I was uh, I was in my early twenties, and I I loved punk and I loved disco. So I had my my disco queen high heels on, but I had blue stripes in my hair. And, uh, <laughs> Are you a fan of the Rolling Stones album Some Girls? That yes. they kind of tried to do the same. Yes. Yeah, the punk and the disco. Yeah. Little shout out for the Rolling Stones. <laughs> Out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. I love the Rolling Stones. Yeah. I remember the look on the gentleman's face who was the studio owner, and he was white-haired, and he looked at me like I had ten heads. And he went around the corner to call my boss, and I heard him say, what the hell is this? And my boss... Because you were a woman. Well, I didn't fit the picture. I mean, I didn't look like anything he'd ever seen before, and I was going to be working on his tape machine. And you know what? I can understand his perspective. Unusual sights are frightening, and that was an unusual sight. And and he was an old he was old guard. You know, he'd never seen this before. So um, I, my boss Keith Skiving says, "Calm down. She knows what she's doing. Let her work on the machine. If she can't fix it, she'll call one of us. Either way, your machine's going to get fixed." So I, I did repair the machine. The problem wasn't that difficult. I found it and I fixed it and had a conversation with the guy and I left. And I, Keith told me afterward, the, the guy called him and said, you know, she's a little wet behind the ears, but she's all right. But, you know, that taught me to meet them halfway. I put the disco shoes in the closet and let the hair grow out normally. Let's, I want to fit in. I don't want to make a point. That's my perspective. I'm not thinking that's how it should be done, right. but that was the right move for me. It felt right, and, and I'm glad I did it. Being able to see what they saw when they saw me and being someone who could fit in rather than challenge the mold. That doesn't mean I had to wear plaid shirts. I wore one with Prince one day, and he sent me home to change. <laughs> Susan, where'd you get that stupid shirt? Glad <laughs> he's I, not here today, because yeah, I'd have I, to go to change. Well, he didn't want any, any women working for him looking right. like guys, but right. yeah, I, I, you know, I wanted to cooperate. That's interesting. I assume there are worse stories that you might have encountered than the one you just told us about obstacles or resistance to you working in this field? No, that's the great thing about oh. being a technician is that the tape machine doesn't care what kind of shoes you wear. Right. It, you, you're the fixer or you don't. This right. is the joy of, of, of being in the, in, in the sciences rather than the arts. In the arts, it's more judgmental. Mm. Um, but everyone, well, over 40 years in the business, uh, all, all the men that I encountered were welcoming and were good to me. They, they trained me. They gave me my first uh, and, and early breaks. Uh, after Audio Industries, I was with them about three years. Uh, I was hired by a studio called Rudy Records. That was Graham Nash and David Crosby. They were happy to have me as their technician. And um, I began to think, you know, like others talk about, this is a feature, not a bug. Right. You want a woman technician because right. you're going to have something that the other guys don't have. This is a feature, not a bug. And to see it as, yeah, I can do everything they do, and I got this thing going on too, that's helpful. Okay. Well, let's talk about your work uh, with Graham Nash and uh, David Crosby at their studio. Uh, you went from being 
uh, a maintenance tech, as you say, to doing what there exactly? Were you did you begin engin audio engineering there or similar kind no, of work? No, no, I was a stu their studio technician. I would occasionally assist yeah. when their regular assistant was busy. It was just a small one room studio, but we had um, some of the best of the best of LA's that soft rock scene, which included the Eagles and Crosby, Stills and Nash and Chris Christopherson and and Bonnie Raid and those folks uh, were all colleagues. Uh, Al Cooper was there quite a lot. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. yeah, David Lindley, of course. And so they would. Uh, your role then was simply to what? What was your keep role? Keep the equipment running. Okay. Repair so the console. Repair the tape machine. Repair microphones. Outboard gear. Uh, tune the room. Uh, monitors, if, if that needed to happen. So, so just a lot of hands on. Keep the studio. Yeah. Yes. Keep the, the studio running. Okay. And how long were you there? About two and a half years. Two and a half years there, and picking up all these skills, but not really being an engineer, but no. observing. How engineering and production yes. works. Okay. Yeah, helping out, but no, I was never in that engineering chair. Do you recall what kind of takeaways you had from just observing, just given your trajectory and where you ended up going with your work? Do you remember any key things you picked up from the role of an engineer or a producer in, in, at that studio? Somewhat. I didn't get to observe it too much. Okay. But it was um, something that was that had a lot of impact on me was seeing how the old guard worked because Jackson Brown and all of the folks who worked at that studio were from an earlier era, kind of the golden era of rock and roll. Right. And what was coming up and what I was a fan of because I was a young woman in my 20s was this new wave. And so Blondie and Talking Heads and yeah. Prince, I was a huge Prince fan, that was coming up. Right. The other thing that was coming up, it's not unlike what's going on today, is drum machines. And synthesizers. Right. synthesizers yeah. And I remember so many session drummers really worried in, in the early 1980s of, are we going to work anymore? There's drum machines and everyone wants drum <laughs> machines and everything you hear on commercial radio is drum machine. And uh, the horn players and the string players saying, we're going to be out of work. I like, uh, it's not, I don't like it, but it's fascinating that as humans there are different cycles in which we have been threatened by robots. Yeah. Like, we're all like worried about automation now. Uh, but and that's a whole other level. And we're cyborgs with our phones for crying out loud. Yeah. But uh, it's that's interesting to hear that those were the early musical robots that were threatening the livelihoods of yes, of in the early '80s. And what's interesting is that our students today sometimes complain at Berkeley that we make them do sessions where they have to record drums, and they they're telling us, you know, you guys. That's like old school. <laughs> but I'm a drummer. This is very <laughs> bad news. In the history of popular music, anytime we add a new technology, we don't automatically get rid of the old one. The tree is getting denser at the top of the branches. It seems to it, me that a new technology emerges. We muck around with it as a civilization for a few years. And then someone sometime a point decides, you know, I'm going to go back to the way we used to do it. And then that becomes a thing again. So yeah. like live drums becomes a thing again. Phew, thankfully. Yeah, when way. typewriters came along, oh, right, it, didn't, yeah. it didn't wipe out pencils hey, and pens. Yeah, that's true, that's true. We still have them. Yeah, we do, it's true. Okay, we've solved <laughs> that one, good, done. So uh, you, are, you worked there at, uh, uh, at that studio for two and a half years, you say, roughly? Yeah. What happens next? Uh, my dream came true. I was uh, Prince was my favorite artist in the world. Uh, I had seen him several times play in Los Angeles, and I had all his records. I, 
he was my favorite artist. And uh, the boyfriend that I mentioned before, he was an ex-boyfriend at this point, but we were very close. And he called me up, and with his thick Boston accent, he was the chief tech at Westlake Audio. And he says to me, Sue, your dream job is waiting for you. Sue, call Glenn at Westlake. Sue, Prince is looking for a technician. That's your job. Call him. Call him. <laughs> and... Uh, and I still remember the phone call. And I called John's boss, and I said, Glenn, I hear that Prince is looking for a technician. How do I get this job? And a uh, short version of the story is I, he interviewed me, and, and uh, Prince's management interviewed me, and they hired me, and I moved to Minnesota. Well, had you interacted with Prince in any way beyond being a fan before no. that? Okay, so tell, did you say Prince interviewed you or the management? No, his management. Okay. So what's your first memory of meeting Prince, if I might uh, ask? My first memory of seeing him up close, this is so bad. Oh, I wish this hadn't happened. He was wearing a towel and a shower cap. <laughs> uh, it's one of those moments you just wish you could erase. Um, just to be clear, had he just come out of the shower, or was that just an outfit no, he decided? No, he had just come out of the okay, shower. Okay, just making sure, because that and would be weird if he I, just walked yeah, around like that all the time. No, no, <laughs> and he was actually, he was, he was shy, and yes. he was uh, personally very conservative, as a lot of folks in Minnesota are, uh, and uh, it, it could have been terrible. I, I don't know if he saw me, but I saw him. So I had just arrived, and I was in the driveway of his home in Chanhassen, Minnesota, and uh, I was I had been, been working in, in the studio downstairs, but I needed to use the restroom, and I asked his personal assistant, Sandy Scipioni, can I use the restroom? Is there one here? And she says, yeah, go in through the front door. And I opened the front door, and it was this split-level home that had a half staircase going up to the right and another half staircase down on the left, and he was just coming across that landing. So I opened the front door, and this little figure went flying past in a towel and... and <laughs> <laughs> shower cap and I'm like oh no 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 <laughs> don't let it start like this but we didn't actually meet then that okay. was my first time seeing him okay. up close okay. but our first meeting actually took place about a week later I, he had me down in the basement uh, his home studio was just a, a bedroom in this the basement of this well home. before paisley park by the way right oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. paisley yeah. didn't didn't come online until 87 this was 83 so he had just come off the 1999 tour and he's right. getting ready to do purple rain which is why he hired a technician right um he was going to need somebody uh, anyway i had been in his room for about a week installing a new console and repairing things still hadn't met him but i could hear him upstairs because right above the studio was where the dining room was, and that's where the piano was, just where the dining room meets the living room. I don't know if you've heard the album that came out recently called uh, A Piano and a Microphone, piano 1983. Yeah. Yeah. And you hear him on piano? That was him every day. That was what you heard Anytime you're setting up microphones and he's waiting for you to mic a drum kit or waiting for you to set something up or you're editing something, that was him on piano. His work ethic had a profound impact on you. It was very influential on you. And it, I mean, my understanding is you barely slept because he, you were at his beck and call, really, because he was so creative at that mm -hmm. point, right? That's about right? Yeah, he. Yeah. Um, I've I've come to understand a little bit more about the neurobiology of creativity. I, I won't bore you with the details of that, but please do. Oh, you wanted? Okay. Well, um, creativity. I've been researching this lately, and um, it's really interesting. Creativity is more born than made, and it's. Um, dependent upon two structures. One is called the right precuneus, and the other is the right parietal temporal 
junction. The names don't matter, but they're over here on the right side where we tend to be creative. Essentially, the way it works is if you need to do something creative, like write a song or anything that you might do, where you're looking at a blank page and you have to think of something creative, you have to consciously, willingly open that right precuneus to let the ideas come. Mm. And for most of us, I'll speak about myself because I think I'm pretty average in this regard, oh, creativity is really hard work. So I'll open the gate and I'll let ideas come if I have to write a presentation or whatever. And as soon as a good idea comes, we shut the gate and we switch from art to craft. Okay, good. That idea is going to work. This is good. You shut the gate and now it's craft. Now I have to build the thing that I just created in my mind's eye or ear. Then you open up this other circuit, and when you're doing that, as your craft is coming through, you're constantly separating into two piles, good idea, bad idea, good idea, bad idea, works, doesn't work, works, doesn't work, until you have the finished product. In highly creative people, those two circuits are slightly defective. They defective? Sh defective. They show reduced deactivation, meaning oh. the gates don't close. Right. They've got leaky faucets. So Prince, I believe now, must certainly must have had two leaky faucets there because one, when it comes to separating relevant from irrelevant information to a very creative person, they leave that door open. Even if they've come up with a good idea, they leave it open. From just in case a better idea comes along. The rest of us shut the gate. But Prince was constantly, constantly, constantly thinking of new songs, which is why we had to work those 24-hour sessions. Sometimes we'd sleep a few hours and do another one. Sometimes we wouldn't sleep at all. Uh, one time in particular, we finished a, basically a 24-hour session. He goes upstairs to brush his teeth at home studio. I'm putting everything away, and he comes back down, and he says, can we go another round? I was just brushing my teeth, and... He's brushing his teeth, and he thought of a song. He didn't write music, so if he thought of it, he had to record it. Was so it yeah, a, was the song teeth. that he came up with dentally oriented? Was no. it about his teeth? <laughs> no, it was a groove. He said he was brushing his teeth, and this groove came to him. I see. And uh, songs can start with a groove. With him, he would sometimes start by programming drum, a drum machine or playing a drum kit. Or songs can start, of course, the way they normally do, with just melody. Or it can be a lyrical idea. And he would start his songs with you know, any of those three. When Prince passed away, we started to hear about this archive, this treasure trove of material. I feel like I heard it was in a vault, for crying out loud. Like It was this highly protected uh, treasure trove of material. You were a witness to this period, uh, prolific period. Can you estimate how much material we haven't heard from that period? Just based on your 24-hour cycle of working, like... We've, you know, we're getting deluxe editions of albums. I know the Purple Rain deluxe edition is quite massive, and there's all these songs that I, some of us had never heard before. Do you have a sense of what we are in for if this stuff comes out? Like, is it a, a lot of stuff? Well, I had a sense two years ago when he passed away, and I've come to understand that I needed to change my uh, what I thought. Um, I was asked this question when he first passed away. I was the person who started the vault. I needed to start a vault for right. him when right. I went to work for him. So I knew how it was when we started it. I heard from others who worked with him after I left how big it had grown to be. You couldn't shut the door on it because it was so full. It was just spilling out. It was spilling everywhere. So my estimate was for every Prince song we knew, 
there were at least two more that you hadn't heard. But after he passed away, I since learned that um, so much of his material had leaked through a bootleg chain that there were bootleggers around the world who had, in the words of one, when I had a Skype conversation with him, he said, looking right into the camera, he looked at me and he said, we have everything. <laughs> we have everything. And they damn near do. So the hardcore collectors have heard 90% of it. This it's very rare that one pops up out of the vault that hasn't been leaked at some point in Prince's history. This is through some nefarious staffing thing like this? There was all that. There yeah. was there were mistakes that Prince made. He used to, oh, oh, oh this is good. He, You'd make him a cassette, right, like a rough mix. And he'd, he'd get in the car and he'd drive around in that Thunderbird that he had for a while there and he'd play the rough mix and he'd eject the cassette and he'd throw it in the back seat. And he was doing this all the time. Just chucking tapes behind him? Into the back, no, into the back seat into the back of seat, the car. Right, yeah. But his assistant would take the car to be washed and detailed oh, every man. other day, and those guys at that car wash were cleaning him out. <laughs> they were cleaning man. out those cassettes and putting them probably in trash bags. Then, of course, there were a lot of girlfriends. Prince had a lot of girlfriends, and he'd say, here, baby, I made this for you. He'd give her a cassette. She'd leave it sitting around at home. Her new boyfriend comes over, sees that sitting there, and it, it walks out of her apartment. There was also a member of Prince's later band after the revolution who we found out through some clever technical manipulation. They found where the leak was, and there was a member of the band that was copying and passing on just about everything. That's a uh, drag. Really sad. Um, really sad. Yeah. Well, we've jumped ahead a little bit here. I want to get back to this uh, period where you begin to work as a technician. You're hired to be a technician. You're hired by Prince to do ostensibly what you had been doing in these other in this the last job you had, but that changed quickly, right? Your role as a technician changed, my understanding is, in a moment, basically, when he had an idea, right? Can you describe that? Yes, I had done all this tech work for him. I assumed he had an engineer. I, I didn't think to ask. Um, but we, when we finally got everything ready to roll, he was really eager to get down into the studio and record, and he asked me to set up a vocal mic. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And he told me which one he wanted, the big tube U47. And I set up the mic and I'm thinking oh, this is going to be bad, because any second now, I just know an engineer is going to walk through this back door and be really upset with me for doing what I'm not supposed to do, which is set up a vocal mic. That's the engineer's job. But, well, Prince is my boss. He asked me to do it, so I set up the vocal mic, and I'm still waiting for the engineer, and Prince had me put up a tape, and put up the tape. It was Mia Boca by Jill Jones, and uh, I, I, I don't think he asked me to get a rough mix, but he might have. But I, he was asking me to do things like the engineer is supposed to do. Uh, and I keep thinking, well, maybe the engineer is late, so maybe that's my excuse. 
And finally I asked him, who's going to engineer it? And he said, you. And I went, okay. <laughs> and I just took the chair. And that was my first engineering gig, is working with him. It's a remarkable story. Uh, you set up the console, right? You were saying that you, you came in and you implemented the console. You're a technician. Now suddenly you're an engineer. This means operating the console. Did you have any sense of how to do it before he said you're engineering, you're going to be the engineer? Like, did you? I mean, uh, there's yeah. obvious things uh, in terms of settings and faders and whatnot, but is that the first time you'd ever actually done that? For all intents and purposes, <laughs> yes. No, I knew signal flow. I knew signal flow. Right. So I, I, didn't, I need, didn't need to be taught how to do things, but I certainly needed to be taught what to do. Mm. Uh, Prince had a very specific sound, and yeah. he liked things panned a certain way, and I knew his ear because I had all his albums, right. but um, it, took, it took some time for me to learn what he wanted and to be able to uh, manipulate a console so that the sound that came out was his sound. Do you recall what that first piece of music was? Is it something that became... The yeah, the first thing he had me put up um, for that recording was Mia Boca on a Jill Jones oh, album. Oh, right, right, you were yeah. saying, right. But the first thing I heard of his, and I'll never, ever, ever forget this, prior to that session was uh, he had me put up the multi-track of Darling Nikki, and I pushed up the faders. <laughs> and it was a small little bedroom studio. Darling Nikki is this thunderously large song on the Purple Rain album. And uh, I'm all alone in this little bedroom these big Westlake monitors right in front of me, and I'm a Prince fan, hearing a song off the new Prince album. <laughs> and there's the tape machine right there. And I just remember kind of looking around like, is anybody else here? <laughs> it, it just seemed like, you know, picture, picture your wildest dream, yeah. and then picture it coming true. It was that moment. That's, it's remarkable. Yeah. So you are beginning work on what becomes the Purple Rain album. He primarily plays most of the instruments on these, a lot of these songs. Is that correct? On Purple Rain, yeah. So he's doing everything, really. Like there's no one else. He's playing the drums. He's doing all, and you're just it's just you two one there. One instrument at a time. Often, when we were home in Minneapolis, it was just the two of us. Often, um, sometimes we'd record at rehearsal with yeah. the whole band, the Revolution, and then Prince's favorite studio was Sunset Sound in Los Angeles. Right. So when we went out to Sunset, we would work with staff engineer Peggy McCreary. Mm -hmm. So it was Peggy and me and Prince, the three of us. Okay. So, what is your? You, we've talked about his. And I, you know, I, I know the Prince looms large in your story. I don't want to dwell too much on him, but you did mention the creative aspect of his brain and the floodgates. Uh, how much did the songs change from uh, his initial idea? And like, you know, when he's playing for the first time, uh, did he have a solid sense of the song right away? Like, was there a lot of modification to his idea, or no? He was a really unusual musical animal. So if he wrote a song and he wanted it to be played on acoustic drums, he would work out the chord changes and the melody on piano. He'd write out the lyrics. Then he'd come, he'd leave me a note usually on the console or sometimes he'd just call and say what he wanted set up. I'd have everything set up and ready to go, including the sound that he wanted. Sometimes it would be tight, dry reverb. Sometimes it would be long reverbs, just whatever he, the song called for. But he wanted to be able to walk downstairs, sit at the drum kit, he'd take the lyric sheet, and he'd tape it 
to a stand. I had the stand ready for him, so the, the lyric sheet is right here. And then he would play the song from top to bottom on drums with no other accompaniment, with no click. He'd play the song in his head with every break, with every fill in his head on drums. He'd get off the drums, come back into the control room, hand him the bass, which of course has to be tuned and ready to go, so that he can play back the drums and play the bass part, which is in his head already. And then the basic rhythm parts, the melody, lead vocal, backing vocals, and then the ornamentation. And we're mixing as we go along, and then you print the mix. Most songs went like that. There were some exceptions. The bigger songs got reworked, things like the beautiful ones and Computer Blue and uh, You Got the Look was reworked. Sign of the Times was one of his bigger songs, and that was like through composed. I mean, it's just from the beginning to the final mix in a one-day session. Nothing compares to you. Vroom. Kiss. Vroom. Well, Kiss had a collaborator. That was uh, David Rivkin over at the other studio. But when, when Prince got it back from David Rivkin, these things just went so fast through him. That's remarkable. Yeah, it really was. Have you thought much about the re uh, one aspect that, that I see a parallel between you and Prince uh, here is you two are both independent spirits on some level. Uh, do you think of yourself as a control freak at all, by the way? No. You seem very laid back and chill. But there's an aspect of controlling your destiny that I hear in your story about trying to take ownership of your path. And when I hear what you're saying about Prince doing everything himself, and we, you know, fascinatingly, when he died, uh, the floodgates opened in terms of his music. Suddenly the music was available on streaming services and things. And he resisted all of that. He very famously fought his record label. He very famously uh, prohibited people from posting his music online without his consent. He was very controlling, I think, uh, is one word. Uh, I respected it. I, I never viewed that. I don't view controlling as a negative thing. When I hear you talk about him producing this music all on his own, well, with you, mm -hmm. that speaks to some connection I feel like you two might have. This notion of my path is my path, and I'm in charge of this, and I'm going to control this, and I don't need external consideration for what I'm doing on some level. I you, mean, you know what I think that is? I think the thing he and I had in common was we had um, a really tiny safety net. And that's what that is. Like the desire for control depends, I think, on whether or not you've got a safety net under you when you're on that tightrope. When, when Prince embarked on his career, it was be successful or be nothing. And this was a kid who had worked like a fiend when he was a child in order to be successful because he was homeless when he was 14 years old. His divorcing parents uh, kicked him out. His stepfather locked him in a room for days on end. And the kid had a, really a, a rough, rough childhood. He had to be successful. So when you're on that tightrope and there's no safety net, you walk really carefully but determinedly and without pause because you can't 
you can't afford to fail. And for myself, with with you know starting getting kind of a rough start, good parents, but um, bad circumstances. There's pain. Yeah, and it puts you out on that tightrope, and you're like, oh, this is gonna work. This is going to work, and I'm gonna see to it that I rely on myself to make it work. You're not uh, begging the universe or other people yeah. to give you a break. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. I just, I hadn't, that hadn't occurred to me until you told these these mm -hmm. stories. So which records of Prince's did you work on? And my understanding is the trajectory of your relation, working relationship was about 83 to 87, is mm -hmm. that correct? So which, which, for people who don't know, what material or what albums does that encompass? It's amazing, in those four years, it was uh, Purple Rain, then Around the World in a Day, and then Parade, and then Sign of the Times, and all but one of the songs on the Black Album. Okay. And you would often tour with him to capture live shows? and Yeah, I was his full-time employee, so whatever he was doing, I was doing. And Did you he... live at his house? No. But you barely went home? I barely went home. Yeah. Did you have to... You had a house? You had a... Apartment. It was a nice apartment? I'm just making conversation now. I don't know yeah, why I'm asking was, about this. No, it was nice. I didn't yeah. see too much of it. But, yeah, yeah I... I you know, we you ostensibly lived at Prince's house. We were together every day. Every day. That's 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 for sure. So a very close relationship, and you've detailed this before. Uh, and but for those who haven't heard it, why did this relationship end? Oh, uh, <laughs> I don't know, uh, and maybe I kind of do know. I think we could kind of sense it coming. Uh, we did so much work in that intense, highly concentrated period, but Prince is an artist. He needed his world. He needed his environment to change. Everything inspires you, and um, if everything is the same, where's your inspiration going to come from? Uh, the revolution had left. He had cut off his um, engagement with Susanna Melvoin. Uh, Paisley Park had just gotten built and opened its doors, so for the first time in our time together, he could now have a staff of engineers not just me. Oh. So the timing was kind of right. I was also just pretty wiped out. I had done 15 years worth of work in going on five years now. And it was time for me, I think, to to fly and, and, and have a life beyond him. And it was time for him to have new methodologies and new working partners. Right. Okay. It's uh, as simple as that on some level. Uh, did you keep in touch with him after that relationship? A little, working bit, a little bit, because I would go back to Paisley Park. Clients would hire me to, to work at Paisley, to mix or to oh. do things at Paisley. So I would see him from time to time. Uh, the last time I saw him was in the late 90s. I was on tour with a band, Gegita, and we were in Minneapolis. We went into Glam Slam uh, one evening, and Prince was there. Uh, it was always a, a real pleasure to see him. Um, I had deep love for him, and and he did for me. There was a lot of affection there. We were both um, not outwardly affectionate people, but there was certainly a lot of love. I see. Okay. So you leave pays or you leave Prince, uh, uh, and what happens next? What are you doing after that? You're so flying free, but I assume you're unsure of where you're flying to. Yeah, in, we, we say uh, in this business you have to work for seven years before you can call yourself a beginner. And at this point, when I left Prince, I had been in it 10 years. I moved back to Los Angeles in the spring of 88, and that was 
10 years since I had begun. I began in 78. So I embarked on a career as a uh, an independent engineer and mixer and producer, eventually getting asked to produce more and more. And that's what I did for the next 12 years until I had this major hit with Bare Naked Ladies. So uh, who did you work with in that time frame? I, I, I have a right, sense of Well, it. right after Princess, the first gig I had was with the Jacksons, which was really interesting. I with on Michael? No, with oh. the album 2300 Jackson right. Street. So it was with Jermaine and, and Tito and uh, Jackie and, and all the rest of the brothers. And hearing stories of their Motown childhood and how they came up and how Michael came up and comparing them with Prince stories of how he came up was really interesting because they both reached the same pinnacle on the pop charts but with two completely different starting points. So yeah, I worked with them, and then I did a lot of alternative indie stuff. Uh, there was Michael Penn and Jill Sobule and records like that. Mm -hmm. My life changed when I met Tommy Jordan and Greg Kirsten, and I, I worked uh, on three Gagita albums. I worked with The Odds in Vancouver, and then of course Bare Naked Ladies and Tricky and Hugh Harris and David Byrne and Rusted Root and quite a variety. Yeah, quite a variety. I don't mean to travel back in time uh, after we've moved on, but... I just I feel like since you brought up uh, uh, the Jacksons, it's Jermaine, no pun intended. Uh, did Prince Jesse got that one? Jermaine Jackson, anyone? You're too young. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so did Prince view Michael Jackson as a rival? Yes, and was really happy about that. He's happy he had someone a foil. Oh sure, yeah, as I'm sure Michael was too. That's what you want. Yeah. Okay. I just wondered. There's the infamous. You mentioned James Brown earlier. There's the infamous clip of James Brown yeah. performing a show and rough. bringing Michael and Prince up on stage to do some stuff. And the consensus is that Michael shone yes. in that moment and that Prince struggled. Yeah, that was bad. That was one of. Were you around the, for that? No, that no. was before me. Before it was one you. of the most yeah. embarrassing moments in Prince's life. If you can Google it. Um, and this is coming from 82. a guy that walked around with a towel and a shower cap a lot of Wouldn't the time. It, he didn't walk around. He was running. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, it, it, it was an accident. Um, no, Prince wasn't quite ready. And, you know, like we say, we want the spotlight of attention to fall on you when you're ready, not when you're stepping into your underwear. But, you know, you've got to try. Yeah. And uh, Prince was invited on stage by Michael Jackson. It was actually James Brown's stage. And uh, Prince wasn't quite savvy enough at this young point in his career to prevent himself from making a very bad mistake. Something you never do. You never will do, but back then, you just don't do it. You don't get on stage with Michael Jackson and dance. You're going down. <laughs> and Prince knew better, because first he gets on stage with these two guys. Here's his rival and his hero. Imagine being a young man, he's maybe 23 years old, on stage with your chief rival and your hero. Yeah. And there's a camera on you. And he, first he's trying to sing like James Brown. Yeah, but James Brown is right there. Okay, so he, he aborts that. Then, all right, well, let me just play guitar. All right, yeah, I'm playing guitar, but that's not interesting because you've got James Brown. <laughs> yeah. Michael Jackson here. So he takes off the guitar, and then he thinks, I know, I'll dance. Oh, you don't do that because Michael can, on one toe, give you five spins. And then Prince, you know, feel, realizes, I just better say goodnight, folks. And as he's leaving the stage, he knocks over a prop 
Yes. He knocked over that big light. This is all on YouTube, uh, but by the way. But let me say, though, I watched him, Prince, watch that clip over and over I was going to ask if you ever talked about this moment yeah. with him, and you were saying he watched a lot. Yeah. He, he internalized even his most embarrassing moments to know what not to do. Yeah. He was a really courageous guy. That's how you learn. That's how you learn. That's how you learn. You listen to yourself. You watch yourself. I know some people are like, I never watch my, never hear my songs. I never, but that's how you learn, I think. You learn from your mistakes more than your victories on some level. Anyway, you mentioned, thank you for going back in time to that horrible time for Prince. Uh, but I, I do, I, yeah. it was, it's I, noteworthy. I, I admire him so much for the courage that he showed in so many ways in his career. Yeah. So this other uh, life altering moment for you occurs in some ways it's unlikely because of Toronto's bare naked ladies. So tell me about that working relationship. How did that come about? You obviously have cachet and credibility because of Prince. You mentioned the other uh, list of people you've worked with. How did you, uh, who are notable as well, uh, how did you come to work with the bare naked ladies? Well, they had sent me, after the first album came out, they sent me demos for their second record. And this the was first an, album is Gordon? Yes, after Gordon, they sent me demos for the second record. And, and I, I listened to Gordon and I liked it, but I was pretty booked up and I was kind of going a more alternative direction at that time. So um, I told my manager that I wasn't interested. But Your punk roots are still they were They were, they were showing a little bit. Yeah. And, but we had some mutual friends in Odds and in uh, Toad the Wet Sprocket out in Santa Barbara and eventually Gagitaw. So the ladies were, um, to my good fortune, they asked me again. So they asked me before the stunt record if I would be ready. And at, at this point, I, I really was ready to work with them. And I had three weeks available in January and February. Okay. So we worked together. And um, we, we, could all, we had almost no time for pre-production. They had all the songs written except for one week. One week was written at the very last point. Which and ends up being this massive single. Yeah, that's not uncommon. That sometimes at the best ideas at the yeah, end. Yeah, when you yeah. finally realize you've got a record, you, the pressure is reduced, and suddenly it just it just pours out. Sometimes oh, I often hear that the record label will say, "Thanks for what you sent in. Ah, uh, you're missing a single. What are you going to do about it?" Did that happen with them? Or not no? that I know of. Okay. No. So one of the most iconic uh, musical moments of our time. It has been memed. It has been studied, I think, by scientists, is from this song, One Week, where Ed Robertson says, it's been, and then nothing happens. I can't believe I'm asking you about this, but tell us about that song <laughs> and that moment, because it has been pondered, uh, and it's used on Twitter quite a bit. I notice that people use it as kind of this joke on some level, but this is a huge song. What do you remember about the, the, the uh, composition of this song and that decision? To be like, whatever, it's been... That, that was their arrangement. <laughs> that was their decision. My contribution had a lot to do with uh, the rhythm section. Oh, okay. uh, they, had, they told me then that one of the things they wanted the record to achieve was to sell more in the States, because they were so well-known in Canada, but they wanted, they wanted to sell more in the States. And for that, the the rhythm has to go a little bit differently. The the groove, the pocket needs to be a little bit different. Fewer tom fills. Sometimes you just stay right in that zone. You stay right in that pocket, and you don't break form, or the rhythm section doesn't. You let the top line break, but the the bottom line needs yeah. to stay. So we needed to get Tyler off the toms a little bit and onto 
uh, work symbols a little differently. So th the decision to do one week with acoustic guitar was something that they wanted to do. I that, see. that was their choice. And the breaks, I, I think it just happened naturally. Okay. I was I had an album right before that record and another one immediately after. So I was really busy and I could only come to Toronto for a couple of pre-productions where they ran down what they had been rehearsing. We made whatever changes we needed to make. Okay. So are you an engineer or producer on that record? How would you describe your role? Both. I, I'm you did credited work. with okay. co-production on it, and, okay. and I engineered it as well. And then after my three weeks were up, I handed it off to David Leonard, who did the remaining overdubs and, uh, and more vocals and mixed it. Is that distinction between engineering and producing one that you feel is uh, muddled or misunderstood, this notion that you are... It was pretty cut and dry back in those days, but now it's pretty hybrid. So in yeah. those days, uh, the engineer was analogous to the cameraman on a film. Right. Uh, cameraman plus art director, responsible for massaging sound. And the producer was responsible for uh, realizing the vision and for helping to form that vision, mm -hmm. for um, uh, making arrangement choices and for pulling performances out of musicians, that's what we do. And for being on that talk back and saying when we got it, or no, no, we need to keep yeah, going. It's a technical so, role. Yeah, yeah they're, they're two different things. At this point, the only way that I could engineer and produce simultaneously is that I knew engineering so well that I could do it automatically. And that right. freed up another part of the brain that allowed me to listen with a, the listener's ear. Right. So from what I've read, I mentioned that uh, this relationship with the Bare Naked Ladies and the success of this album was life-altering for you. From what I've read, you viewed the success and the money that you earned from it as a almost a way out of mm. what you were doing as an engineer, as a technician, and that uh, instead you thought, okay, I'm going to take this money and I'm going to go to school. Mm. Is that accurate? Yes. When you'd have a hit record back in those days before Napster, evil... <laughs> Before evil file sharing, uh, producers and artists got royalty checks. And if you had a hit record like this was, multi-platinum, you had a big royalty check. So you could pay off your mortgage or you can build a recording studio or do what I did, which is quit my job. Uh, I had Like a lottery ticket almost. Well, I had been, um, since my mid-30s, I began feeling a second calling, the calling to go to college and be in the sciences. I thought I would really enjoy that line of work. And the voice was just getting louder and louder. By the time I was in my... 40s when we did that record it was a pretty loud voice I was no longer listening to college radio I was in my mid 40s and I thought I would enjoy Is that the when that happens am I going to stop listening to college radio no I don't know it does for some people I remember I was working with T-Bone Burnett we were at the magic shop in New York and he was being interviewed and the interviewer asked him uh, do you listen to college radio and he says Hell no, I don't listen to college radio. I'm 47 years old. There'd be something wrong with me if I listened to college radio. Huh. And I was just three years younger than he, and I thought, yeah, I'm feeling this too. Like right. I'm no longer as excited about the records. I'm the, at least the genre of music that I'm making. I'm more interested in jazz, and you know, my tastes are changing. Is that a uh, you know, in your work as a cognitive scientist, is that something that occur like? I wondered about that, this notion of aging out of music, mm. listening to music and, and aging out of this impulse I have to discover new music. And I wonder where mm. it comes from because I think it's a lack of time. I, I Actually, first of all, I don't think that's happened to me yet, but I hear of this happening. I know it's a phenomenon that will occur. As a parent of two children, as someone who has six, seven 
types of jobs. Uh, I mean, one of them happens to be processing new music, so that's lucky. But I imagine at some point my mental capacity for processing something as vibrant and new might change. Is there something in my wiring? It Can you analyze it, me yeah, right now and examine me and <laughs> let me know what's happening? It probably won't change. I'm going to talk about it tomorrow. Um, I have to you, wait till tomorrow? Yes. But no, You're but just like my it, actual doctor. <laughs> greater, greater detail. Uh, our appetite for music and our preferences is driven by gene expression. And it's Per, so is personality. And those tend to be fairly stable over a lifetime. What isn't stable over a lifetime is things like uh, resting arousal rate. Right. So, for example, Adrian North did this work. He showed that there are two groups of people who have almost the exact same personality profile. They only differ according to age. Young men who like heavy metal and older men who like classical music the same personality profile. It's just that when you're young, you're into heavy metal. As you get older, your resting arousal rate slows down a little bit. You still want the same experience. You want complexity. Virtuosity. Right. You want virtuosity. Yeah. You want an active, not passive music listening experience. You're just older and you've kind of been there, done that. So you're seeking newer experiences. But the core of what you like will remain the same, just as your appetite for food will remain the same. Right, okay. If you're adventurous as a foodie, you'll be adventurous your whole life. And if you're you're not a risk taker with food, that'll persist your whole life. It sounds to me that you were physically exhausted by your work as much as you were mentally exhausted and you had this voice calling you somewhere else. So what did where did that voice lead you that you were talking about after I just thought I would really enjoy going to school and studying and that same engineering mind um wanted to keep engineering but with a new input source different engineering yeah. yeah yeah and uh, i became very attracted to neuroscience I, I really wanted to do brain science so i did four years at the university of minnesota with the money that i got from my royalty checks back in minnesota interesting yeah back to minnesota i love the u of m and then um i was fortunate to be accepted into mcgill it's the world's center it's the mecca for music cognition and music perception research and um, I was accepted in Daniel Levitin's lab. Okay. Uh, so I did four years at McGill. So you, huh, you were exhausted by music on one level. On another, you wanted to dig deeper into it. You wanted to know how it worked more than... Oh, yeah. That's yeah. fascinating. No, no, I, I was... I, was uh, I love record making. I love engineering. I love production. I love mixing. I'm jealous of the kids who, who get to do it now. But I had my day. Yeah. I made... I had all the fun I wanted to have. It's their turn. They should do this now. I can't help but wonder if, if your studies are uh, some sort of self-examination of why you are you have had these impulses in your life to, to take the path you've had. Because you're a music fan, and I think some of what you're... St correct me if I'm wrong, but I imagine some of what you're studying is why a person relates to music in a certain way, how it helps them, how it alters their mind, how it alters their brain chemistry on some level. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good way of thinking of it. But I think of it a little bit more like it's like being in love. M music and I, we, I made a commitment to it. And I was its partner. And I loved it. And I was good to it. And I served it well. But I began getting interested in somebody else. 
I began getting interested in the sciences. The nerd version of it. Right. So here was my partner that had been good to me. Yeah. And I really kind of hated to leave music. But at the same time, this other voice was, there was something there. There was, it was getting louder and louder. And um, so this new partner, the sciences, I honestly love as much as I loved working in music. It, it is to my good fortune that they are complementary. Yeah. Uh, I like teaching students at Berkeley from, we can talk about record making from, you know, the artist or the production or the engineering or mixing aspect. We can also talk about record making from the consumer's point of view, mm -hmm. and that's the brain science of it. So the, the conversation is uh, like having a conversation about family in a way. Yeah. Like these are, um, these are things I love and things I feel like I know as we feel like we know our partners or our loved ones, but we don't really know. Yeah. And it's always nice when there's a little bit of mystery there. So I think it's more like you mentioned self-discovery. It kind of feels like other discovery, mm. too. You're discovering something about something you love. Are you, in your work, kind of in touch with how music consumption is working these days? And and well, I ask this because and, and I've had a couple of uh, dark conversations. since I came to Ottawa like a th you know thunder cloud, a dark cloud, uh, saying everything is in a in kind of a bad shape on some level. I don't mean it. I'm ultimately an optimistic, hopeful person. That's why I do things like what we're doing today and why I make a music-oriented podcast and why I go to shows and listen to music and listen to music with my kids. Like, I love music. But there is something going on, I think, and I don't know if your work will speak to this in terms of how the general population seems to have devalued music uh, on some level, like on some level, these streaming services and whatnot are very popular. And on some level, I feel like people have more access to music than they've ever had. Musicians have more access to their fans because of the internet than they've ever had. But at the same time, musicians are struggling a lot more on some level to make ends meet with it because uh, it used to be a song came on the radio in a major market and it maybe a million people heard that song and if 10% of those people went out and bought the record, uh, the artist would do quite well. And now it's people often post their streaming numbers and it says 300 million people, or well, that's an exaggeration, 4 million people heard my song. Well, how many people bought that song in the end? How, how did that come back to the artist? And so I wonder if you in your work cover this at all, the way we consume music and have... Like a lot of us still buy music, I think, and a lot of us support. Probably the people here are engaged in music making because they love it. But it seems like a fraught time. Yeah. That's arguable. I know a lot of people will push back against what I'm saying and say, well, you know, I guess those musicians just need to get another job as well. And that's a different outlook than I'm used to. Do you have any thoughts on that? Have you pondered I that? I have thoughts on it, but I haven't read any scientific findings about where things are going. Most scientists are interested in, ones I read anyway, are interested in brain science. So I don't know too much about social psychology. Okay. So I don't know those papers, but I certainly have thoughts on it um, from my personal perspective and that of my colleagues and our, our students and our graduates at Berkeley. Music is going in kind of the opposite direction that food went. So years ago, not that long ago, people did not go out to eat. You bought groceries and you made food at home. It was a 
pretty rare occasion for the majority of people where you would go out to eat. Everyone it was a special occasion. It was a special occasion. Yeah, yeah you, you, you made food. That's what you did. But as our society advanced and as people got really, really busy, in today's world, it's rare that you make food at home. People eat fast food and they, they order out. You're having someone else do something for you that you could do for yourself, but you're saying, you know what? The way you make that sandwich is better than how I would make it, and I'm willing to give you money to make me a sandwich. That's where we've come. But in music, it's gone the opposite direction. The price of admission to be able to make music in the middle of the last century was really, really high. You had to have a specialized knowledge or skill. You had to be a producer or an engineer, or you had to be signed to a record deal. You had to afford the money to go into a big recording studio. Not that many people could make music. That was a big deal. Now, if you've got a laptop, you can be a recording artist. So now, in the opposite direction, people are saying, why would I pay you to make music for me? I can make my own music. So I think we've got everyone making artisanal music now. Hmm. I think that human nature being what it is, we will go back to realize, you know, yeah, I can make my own music, or I can listen to my friend's music, or my roommate's, or my brother's music, but I'd rather pay for the music that that guy makes because I think it's better. I think the marketplace of ideas will sift once again these objects. Mm. And music used to be the rare gold in this pan. And now we're seeing like, okay, it's, it's in the pan. We've got gold, but we've got a lot of other stuff that we like, namely our own music. Right. And and we I think we need to get back to that point where we're beginning to have a value system that recognizes that some people do make food or music better than others. Is it worth paying for? My what I'm observing at at Berkeley and what seems to be the story now is that things are on the upswing. We're hearing with each passing year, better stories from our graduates out in Los Angeles. I'm hearing about recording studios being built. This new studio called Gold Digger, which is nine rooms in Los Angeles. Nine rooms that are working. Yeah. And, and if new studios are being built, that means that someone's crunched the numbers and someone has said, I can make a profit off this. More of our graduates are getting work and are, are winning awards and are moving up the chain faster. I'm hearing that New York is kind of coming back in the business end. I, I, because people love to consume music and because people love to make it, it stands to reason that someone's going to get in the middle and say, well, I'll take money for this transaction. Yeah, right, right. That's true. All right. Well, I appreciate your perspective on, on that. Uh, you're giving a talk tomorrow, as you alluded to earlier. I'm wondering if you can take a moment to uh, discuss what that talk's going to be about, and also if there are other aspects of your work that you want to highlight, uh, things you're working on now uh, or that, are, that you're planning to start to work on mm. that you are excited about, I suppose. Oh, thanks. Yeah, tomorrow's talk is psychology for music makers, and it's going to be kind of the highlights of uh, some of the talks that I give at Berkeley, especially to the record production students. We'll talk about how people bond to music. Um, we'll talk about how music can cause us to have an emotional reaction. We'll talk about finding your audience, and we'll talk about 
recognizing the fact that uh, you're not going to make music that's going to appeal to everyone. Mm -hmm. If you did, it would be the most bland music imaginable. No more than you'll make a food that appeals to everyone. The only food that appeals to everybody might be water that we can all agree on. Yeah, that's pretty good. But that's, <laughs> they give you that for free in restaurants. So For now. Um, for now, right. I'm so, such a horrible cynic about everything. I it's a good balance. Up. It's a good balance. I'm such yeah. a Pollyanna. <laughs> but uh, yeah, well, so we'll, we'll talk about the, how lessons from brain science can uh, inform record makers, whether you're a musician or producer. And then the thing I'm interested in right now, as I was saying backstage, um, I will not talk about it tomorrow, but it's a, a big concern at, at Berkeley and elsewhere, is hearing health in young musicians and protecting your hearing. Uh, boy, you're going to want to do that. Uh, we now know, thanks to the great work that's done at Massachusetts Eye and Ear, um, the, we know now the time course of something called audio, audio neuropathy, uh, auditory neuropathy. It refers to the degradation of the auditory path as a function of both noise exposure and just general aging. That noise exposure is going to accelerate the, the degradation of that path, and it can take years for that to happen. So you want to protect your hearing. Uh, when you're at those clubs for megaphono, just wear earplugs. Just do it. You'll be glad you did. If you're a musician playing on stage, put them in. It's not all bad news. Uh, we, we now know that moderate stress, moderate levels of stimulation, actually have a mediating influence on damage. So if you're kind of enjoying yourself while you're pounding your ears, there are some benefits to that. Mm. But don't read into that moderate stress i mean if you're blasting your ears there's no protection right. it's a little bit like the difference between the soreness of soreness from having played hockey or the soreness from being pushed down a flight of stairs yeah. when you add insult to injury it's worse than if you had fun when you were getting that injury right <laughs> all right very well put very well put Special thanks again to Dr. Susan Rogers for appearing with me at that live event at the Megaphono Festival in Ottawa on this, the 467th episode of Creative Control. I should point out uh, that the uh, machine, we were going to go to a Q&A there. We did go to a Q&A in, in, in real life. <laughs> we had a Q&A with the audience, and it was really fascinating, but unfortunately the machines that were recording our, our talk started to... I don't know. They lasted most of the thing, and then they just stopped working. So I didn't include the Q&A because I didn't have it. So um, apologies, but still, uh, I hope you enjoyed that uh, great conversation with, with Dr. Susan Rogers on this, the 467th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available on all iOS and Android platforms and Spotify, YouTube, Audio Boom, these sorts of things as well. If you want to learn more about me and sign up for my regularly scheduled newsletter, please visit vishkana.com. You can like Creative Control on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at vishcreative, or follow me directly at vishkana. And you can also listen to a radio show version of Creative Control on Wednesdays at noon Eastern Standard Time, around the world at cfru.ca, or on an actual radio at 93.3 FM if you're in or near Guelph. Also, please visit patreon.com slash Control to make a flexible monthly donation to keep this podcast going i'm hoping to keep it going it's getting a little dicey creative control needs your support patreon.com slash creative control if you'd like to support the show with a financial 
donation. Thanks again to Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, Planet Bean Coffee, and Granddad's Donuts for their in-kind support of the show. Also to my pal Jim Guthrie for letting me use one of his songs to end the show each and every week. And thank you very much for listening to this program and uh, and subscribing to this podcast and telling your friends about it as well and for inviting me to your festival to do a live interview or moderate a panel. That's always fun, and if I can do it, I will definitely try. All right, I have to go, but I will talk to you very soon. Bye for now. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.